All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. Tonight, we are regaled with our guest, Brian Bales. And before we get going, I'll throw out a couple of your social media here real quick. Uh, on both YouTube and Instagram, it's Bales5000, so B-A-L-E-S 5000, if you want to check Brian's workout. Welcome, Brian. I know we've been sort of YouTube pals online for, it seems like a decade. I don't know if it's that long, but it's been quite a while. 2014, I think I put my first video out. Yeah. And two by four contest. Two by four. Well, and you've done, I guess, over the years, I, I think I'm trying to remember back to the first video I saw of yours. And I don't even know if it was a video. You you used to, I don't know if you still do, put stuff on Instructables. Yep. And I think I may have tripped across your zipper snare drum on i think it was on instructables and then it led me to youtube and i was like oh this is awesome is that kind of accurate yeah i started on instructables awesome and really the reason so a little bit of history here i know i do a lot of guitar stuff and i talk a lot about guitars but my background was in percussion that was what i grew up doing and uh, became a little bit of a board drummer and taught myself to play guitar but Brian was making stave drums, and that was what really drew me into your channel. First and foremost, uh, I'd seen people make drums before, but then to kind of do it out of all these, I would say, odd materials. But the staves were one of the first things that I saw. And one of the one of the things that drew me in was some of the tools and jigs and fixtures that you were making to make said drums. Yeah. And I guess kind of where, where my curiosity starts is where did you pick up your drum building? Where did that start for you? I just started on my own. <laughs> well, I so was... did, okay, I guess maybe I'll ask it this way. Did you see yeah. somebody else building them? Or did you just like one day wake up and go, you know what, I'd like to start building my own drums? Well, I bought my house in my early 30s and I was acquiring tools to work on the house. Uh, so I, I acquired chop saw, table saw, and I would bang on a few projects and I started getting burned out. And I was like, I gotta do something to switch it up. So I was like, I, I, I think I want to make some drums. I'm going to build out my shop to make some drums. So I just slowly started building out the shop and I didn't know how to make drums. So I just took all my store-bought drums apart to kind of uh -huh. reverse engineer them. Uh-huh. And so, well, I guess, you know, again, did you, did you start by doing stave drums or did you start by buying shells or making your own shells? Uh, and when I say that, like laminating the plies? Yeah, I started with uh, purchasing laminated plies. You buy tube stock. Uh, used to be Keller was the the one producer in the game out of New Hampshire. Uh huh. Uh, since then, Nordics come along, and I think they're in Michigan or Minnesota. I can't okay. Remember. So it's yeah, it's laminated uh, seven ply, ten ply, five ply, whatever you want to, whatever you want to get. I I suspect made to order in some ways. Is it maple? Is it cherry is it something else or generally maple or you can get uh sometimes you can get like a walnut or a mahogany veneer uh -huh. if you go if you go with nordic they have a bunch of specialties and exotic you can get cherry black walnut so okay. how does the uh, number of plies and the type of wood uh determine the tone or affect the tone of each drum uh harder the wood generally the brighter the sound so the softer woods kind of kind of absorb the sound i guess you could say it so the sound doesn't refract as much kind of like a sponge and the thicker more mass 
higher pitch, uh, less vibration and a little less sustain. So like less plies and a harder wood's going to give a brighter sound. Uh, generally it'll be a higher pitch and uh, more sustain. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of variables that, you know, your diameter, your depth, your bearing edges, the types of heads you use snares there's a lot of acoustic science behind it that i I don't even really understand i i've always likened you know well guitar building is the same way there's a certain amount of like if you've ever met somebody who makes wine or who makes cigars there's this entire lifetime of work that can go into making a decision Mm -hmm. and some of and i don't know if you experience this or not i don't want to put any words in your mouth but it feels like at the beginning, there's a lot of dumb luck and in that you just sort of fall into things. You're like, well, that actually worked out, but I didn't expect it to. Yeah. It's a lot of experimentation. And I, I look at, I don't know how long, I mean, I can, I can guess what's, what's also interesting for those who haven't seen Brian's channels before. Um, you, you also work at a drum shop now you and, and a, I'm going to say a partner, but I don't know if you're business partners or if you just work together, um, but but you guys build hundreds of drums a year now. And a lot of that is, well, I'll let you talk about where where that stuff comes from, where those projects come from. Yeah. So Calderwood Percussion is my buddy Bill's drum company. And what's, fu- what's funny about it is I was building out my shop and he was working for Harmonix, the makers of games like Rock Band and Guitar Hero. Okay. And he was making him and him and a friend of his were making just crazy instruments to sample for the games. Okay. So he so he bought a lot, a huge lot of destroyed drums off uh, Craigslist. So he, his process to learn how to build drums was just buy a bunch of crappy drums and experiment. Whereas mine was just reverse engineer high quality drums. Okay. But they made like a, a contra banjo, like this giant banjo out of a drum shell. So they were sampling for the video games. And I'm, I have like kind of, I'm a mix of OCD, ADHD. <laughs> like I didn't want to make a drum until I had the shop built and ready to make drums. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bill will just start making a drum in the middle of the road <laughs> and figure it out. So he's like, well, if you're if you're not going to use your shop to build drums, I'll use your shop to build drums. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I would so, go to work. I would go to work to my IT job, and Bill would come over and just build drums out of my basement. No doubt. Okay. And, and then I would come home at night. We'd work a little bit together. He'd go home to the wife and kids, and I would just work until I ran out of gas. But at that point, we were building, uh, I'd say, modern snare drums and drum sets okay right and the first the first stave drum we made was for that two by four contest okay because i was only on instructables i wasn't in the youtube community but i saw this two by four contest and i was like you know what we should do or something that's really stupid it, we, sh- we should make a drum out of just a two by four so that's how that that's how that came about that's okay. how the that's how the calderwood percussion youtube channel started my first YouTube channel was the Calderwood Percussion YouTube channel. Oh, and the yeah. only reason it got traction is because uh, Pachuto had his weekly woodworking show and he shared it. That, I had no idea. I I was completely backwards on that. And that that's, you know, simply because I fell into your channel at some point. Yeah. And, and uh, then eventually 
as you were putting up videos about you and Bill working together and all the things you were doing, it's like, oh yeah, okay, there's this other. Yeah, if you if you go way back on that channel, you'll see that we're in my basement with like a little <laughs> a rigid contractor saw, like basic tools. The shop is bare bones. Well, and then we so just we we outgrew my shop. Yeah. He ended up he ended up working out in New Hampshire for a while at his parents' property, and then he ended up acquiring that industrial space, which was an old shoe shank factory. Okay. And when he went up to New Hampshire, we kind of drifted, you know, drifted away because I'm that's like forty five an hour away, and I had my IT job. Uh, and then he, you know, went to New Hampshire by himself, and then he came to Avon, and he just had like a revolving door of interns. Uh huh. And then COVID hit and wiped his interns out. Because oh. no, because no one wanted to come work. So he's like, he called me up. He's like, hey, this is a long shot. You probably don't want to do it. I could really use some help. I can't pay Jack. Like, I can basically give you a little gas money. What do you think? And I'm like, cool. Because <laughs> I was just, I was building drums. Like, you can probably test to this. I was building drums, but all that was happening is I was getting more and more drums in my house. <laughs> yes, they weren't leaving. They weren't leaving. I wasn't selling them because I make the experimental crazy drums like prototype. Yep. And I overthink everything. So nothing's ever good enough to give to a customer. Brian can probably, he probably has some of that. I have quite a few of those pieces. So, so for Bill, it kind of like scratch niche. I could go build drums that then go out the door. Like I don't have to see them anymore. It was the best of both worlds. Yeah. So uh, how did the two by four drum sound when it was done? Oh, terrible. <laughs> terrible. Much I didn't. Oh, oh yeah, saw. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, so it's a stave construction, like a wine barrel, and then the lugs, the lugs were chunks of two by four with handmade. I guess you would barrel bolts from the furniture industry. Yeah, but the whole game was you were supposed to use hardly any hardware. So I'm, it's a piece of dowel drilled sideways with a Forstner bit and epoxied a, uh, a nut. So it's it's an amalgamation. And I didn't have a lathe and didn't have a router mill, but we did have a disc sander. So the outside is contoured or rounded with a disc sander. Oh, wow. And the inside, I didn't even touch it. It's still like the still octagonal like, surfaces. Yeah. So sound just slams around in there. It's it's horrible. And for the hoops, I, I should have done like a three-layer hoops and staggered the joints like a bricklayer's pattern. But we were running out of time. So it's just six segments, and I tried to reinforce the joints with, uh, like, splines, but I ran the splines the wrong way, <laughs> so they ended up just cracking under pressure. So oh, no. the thing looks good from six feet away, but if you get up on it, oh, man, it's it's pretty bad. It looks yeah. like you put a fire out with a fork, and it, it just sounds... It sounds atrocious. Yeah, I have a few projects like that when people come over, and they're like, oh, I saw that on you. Don't touch it. Don't get near it. <laughs> <laughs> like the push the table and it just falls over yeah don't 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 get too close yeah but uh <laughs> that one's still drying <laughs> yeah the the thing is so that that contest had a deadline and we started the week of mm. and we started making three and we would get to a certain point and we'd make a mistake on one so that fell off so then we were pushing two and then <laughs> we ended up with one. Oh wow it's interesting i i would say i've seen i've seen you do a handful of contests over the years and there was a quick crete challenge yep and i i'm try i remember you left like a sono tube on the outside if i remember right or the the first drum was a legit 
10 inch 10 inch by five concrete drum okay and i formed it with sauna tubes that one sounded horrible as well because i couldn't get a clean bearing edge because mm -hmm. i didn't the best way if you were going to do this anyone that wants to make a concrete trunk put your time into a form and mold or cast the bearing edges and cast all the hardware holes mm -hmm. so okay. probably make a rigid form made out of wood and maybe like a slip ring out of uh aluminum flashing or something so the concrete doesn't stick to the wood yeah but, but i didn't have time so i just <laughs> I made this concrete and it looked pretty good. And then I just tried to carve the bearing edges with an angle grinder. So of mm -hmm. course they're not gonna, they're not gonna get nice. You're not gonna get a nice offset 45 or even like a rounded edge. But so I just I faked it. Because the yeah. contest, the contest, you didn't have to hear the thing. You just had to see it. Yeah. But the other thing is with the concrete, you try to drill the holes for the hardware. Well, as soon as you hit a piece of aggregate, the bit deflects. Yeah. Right. And and then you'd pierce the internal and you'd get a concrete blowout so you could go back in and kind of you know make a slurry and, and paste it in somehow i didn't crack it uh since then i've tried to go back and make a 14 inch version uh -huh. and every time i've drilled it the thing shatters not a surprise i don't you'd have to I cast don't... it with uh like fiberglass uh mat right the strands yeah i don't i don't know if i've ever seen a clean hole in concrete like i'm around that stuff I'm not going to say every day, but I'm around it a lot. And I see a lot of holes drilled in concrete. I don't know that I've ever seen a clean one. They always uh, chip out. And if you drill through, yeah, for sure. They always blow out on the backside. I mean, DW produces a, a concrete snare drum. It's it's sandstone or it's some, mm. I'm sure they use, they use all kinds of polymers, obviously resins. It's, it's probably, my guess would be, it's probably uh, a lot like they do cast stone lintels and things of that nature where it's a, really really fine mix but they're putting it into a form that's the final like it's those things come out almost polished i just wonder what they use for a binder like if uh, there's fiberglass fiberglass strands or, or what in there there's some of those materials so like um I'm, I'm hoping you know what I mean when I say cast stone, but like they make um, column caps and things out of this. And like when you feel it, it, it feels textured a little bit, but it's super fine texture. I mean, like really, really small. Um, they use some kind of a, I, I've been to a cast stone manufacturing plant before. And of course, you know, everything's a secret when you're in there, which that's yeah. fine. But they don't, they don't use large aggregate. That's the first thing. Everything is really small. And the, they use a Portland as part of their mix. So that's what sticks everything together. But then they use some kind of a, some kind of a, uh, an acrylic. Acrylic binder, probably. Binder that, that goes in there. But then when, when they actually pack the stuff into the form, they pack it with these, um, it's like a pneumatic tool, almost with like a bass drum beater on the end of it. It's a big oh. felt beater. And they pack that stuff in there. I can't remember what the PSI is, but it's ridiculous how how much pressure they put into those forms. And they do it like every inch or so. So they they pack a little bit of, of stuff in there and then brrr, around they go. And then they pack right. more in. And by the That'd time it gets helpful. done, yeah. it's it's homogenous and it's perfect. Yeah, because I was... I had some cavitations as well, just trying of course. to pack it down in there. Yeah. But so, so that was a failure, but I got through the quick Creek contest. I didn't, I didn't win. But Bernie Solo won that year. That's savage, oh. but he made he that make awesome the lamp? lamp. Yeah. The lamp yeah. Lamp. Yeah. He took it. Damn you, Bernie. <laughs>
you had good competition. Bernie's oh, about as good a competition as you can get. He's a good dude. So I was looking at this drum. I'm like, damn, and the thing is heavy. It's like 10 pounds for a 10 inch drum. It's stupid. And I was looking at the drum and I was looking at the quick creep tubes. I was like, wait a minute. Why don't I just make a drum out of the quick creep tube? Okay. So the problem with a quick creep tube, cardboard, how are you going to get a bearing edge on it? And uh, it wasn't, it was pretty close to the size of a, of a drum head for a 10 inch drum. But what I did is I just put wooden wooden end caps. Yeah. I, I just cut off some shell stock and I basically cut a, an exterior rabbit on the shell stock until it fit down into the quick creep or the tube, the quick tube. And I just epoxied those in there and then I could cut the bearing edge on the wood. Nice. I, I know I'm positive I watched that video. It's been several years ago. I, I, I want to say four years ago, but it might be longer ago than that. And that one sounds like you're hitting a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've we got a theme here. Uh, experimental drums often don't sound great. Oh, but... man. And you get, oh, I'm, I'm, you guys are on YouTube, so you know how it is. Some people are like, this is great. And other people are like, that's stupid. That probably sounds like crap. <laughs> yeah, some people don't appreciate the exploration of an idea. Even if you know the idea is dumb, sometimes that's what makes it fun to do. Right. So then I would follow up with a how does it sound video. And the first one I did was just kind of like a bare bones. Here's how it sounds. And I was like, oh, that that tuning's horrible. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. So the next one I did low range tuning, mid range tuning, high range tuning. Uh, for a while, I was like falling into the into the troll traps, I guess you could say. Yeah, I just it's couldn't let, do. I just couldn't let it be. I was like, no, damn it. You don't get it. Well, but, I think... yeah, the experimental drums are. Or uh, that's what keeps me interested. Like that, the zipper idea is also stupid. Well, but the the thing that I would say is there's value in wall hangers. There really is. Like you look in, I'll use the fashion industry as an example, because I think it's really easy, easy to see. You see some of these world famous designers put on a fashion show and they have some of the dorkiest looking crazy like no one would ever wear that in public kind of crap but they do it because they're trying to stretch their legs a little bit in terms of what's possible or what are these weird ideas i want to chase then you yeah. look at the line of clothes that they put out that are for the buyers in new york or you know wherever uh that they're going to buy and it's like okay that person they know how to how to make something that people can wear but they're definitely you know they've got this other cool thing that they're doing and i think there's nothing wrong with making something. And I, I think, you know, for our audience, this is a, an important lesson. There's nothing wrong with making something that's a wall hanger. That's just cool to look at. Not yeah. a damn thing wrong with that. Yeah, it's now, the attention, this, tension grabber. Yeah, the stuff you'll learn by making the outrageous thing will make you a better craftsman for the thing that you actually sell or the thing that goes to the client. That too. Yeah, the techniques that you have to learn and thinking out of the box. Yeah, trying to make that, something crazy is is very difficult skill-wise. That is. That's the part that I find fun. I find the design fun. And then I, I like all the problems that I get into and how to get myself out. Yeah. And then I have the finished product and I'm like, that's kind of cool. And I enjoy it for a day and I'm, I'm kind of over it. So, so a design, design wise, when I was watching your YouTube channel, um, as you know, cutting wood that is round is difficult and dangerous. And I was, you have uh, like a sanding jig that has rollers on it so you can roll the round thing around while you hand sand. And then you had some kind of jig for the chop saw to reduce the, the ring diameter, I'm guessing. Um, and then okay. some kind of jig for the table saw. How did you 
design all of those or did that kind of come with your relationship with your partner? Uh, I'm the crazy jig builder. And you know what kind of the first thing that got me into building the jigs, it was uh, John Heiss's channel. Oh, yeah. The first videos of his I saw was uh, that the first incline plane router lift of his that he made. Mm-hmm. And I bought the plans and I built it because at that time I, I wouldn't have been able to make it for my own brain. I still needed instructions at that point. So it, it took it took a while for me to get to the place where I could think of an idea and explode it in my head to see all the parts and know how to build it. And now I'm to the point where I can basically just do iterations in my head so I can eliminate a lot of the mistakes before I even get to the project. But some of those, Brian, were uh, necessity, like cutting that tube on a table saw <laughs> when the when the, the tubes come as two feet long tubes, so you got more side-to-side length than you do in and out feed, you're just looking and asking for kickback. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to, you can't just, you could try to push the tube through and then <laughs> a lot of guys just muscle it. They'll just push it into the blade and they just sit there and, and turn it. That seems very scary to me. I thought that was crazy. I was like, so I ended up finding an old uh, shop tour from Gretsch from the 40s or 50s. And some guy had made an aluminum fixture with rollers. And I basically kind of just ripped off his idea for my first, the first version. The first version was a one piece. It it was made out of uh, wood and PVC rollers. And I stole that idea from the new Yankee workshop. Really? I don't recall uh, Norm ever building anything round. Norm had a video where he made his own table saw in-feed, out-feed rollers out of PVC. I'll have to go back and uh, look for that one. So does this sit on top of the table saw and then you set the drum on top of that and then spin it on spin it on that and that keeps it from racking to yep. prevent the kickback. That's how the first first version. The second the version I'm on now is separate in caps. Uh so and I have like rollers that are 40 to 50 inches long so I can do massive links the first one was could only do up to two feet and it just dropped onto my rigid table saw but once i upgraded to the saw stop it kind of it didn't totally work so i just I re- rebuilt another another one but so yeah it has end caps and it has slots in two inch increments so you can bring the two rollers closer and further apart for the different diameters of the shells oh nice because you want the shell to ride as close to the deck as possible so you don't have to raise the blade up as much Mm-hmm. But the thing about the roller is, yeah, you don't get any of that side to side movement for the kickback. All you have to do is worry about a little enough pressure to keep it against the fence and you just rotate it. Just bring the blade up into it, rotate it, lower it out, lower the blade down. Because the other right. thing is you you would try once you were done with your cut, you would kind of have to just hold this and kill your saw and hope nothing caught. Yep. Because <laughs> you're you're still in kickback land. Yeah. That's I, I know uh, I've watched the progression of that jig over the years and just always been like oh man you you got to have balls of steel (laughs) to test one of those out the first thing you know am i off five degrees because if i'm off five degrees this thing's gonna hit me right in the face (laughs) oh yeah you know just and and it's uh, yeah i i could see like like the pucker factor as you're rolling the drum just slowly increases and then and then it's like landed on the aircraft carrier right there in the last inch (laughs) like you know you you don't want you don't want the part next to the fence to move a hair because that that's very you know it'll shoot it right at you yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. It's oh. uh it's still a lot better than trying to manhandle it. I've made so I made one for my shop, I made one for Calderwood, uh, I made one for SJC as well. There that's a they're a popular drum brand here in Massachusetts because they were just they were just <laughs> manhandling on a rigid table saw and i'm like oh my god you don't <laughs> i was like i hope your medical insurance is good you're gonna be buying your employees fingers what, yeah, are, you, what uh, are you doing over here oh yeah especially well uh you mentioned saw stop earlier and brian and i are are both old delta unisaw guys mm. and uh i started i started uh going through my index of I need to talk to my tax guy and see where I'm at. You know, we'll see where my cash position is at. It's it's November, almost December of this year. And I thought, what would I spend my money on if I had a little extra cash this year? I'm like, you know, I might spend it on saving future fingers. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I think I would put, I, I go back to, and I know this isn't, this podcast isn't about tool time, but it, it is good to talk talk tools once in a while. I think one of the nicest saws I ever used was out in Boston at the Autodesk build space. They had the world's biggest saw stop, I, the five horsepower with the big, mm. long, polished table. Easily the nicest table saw I've ever used. So smooth. Yep. I was using the, the rigid job site saw, the one that has the built-in wheels. Mm -hmm. And I was, I got too confident at one point and I was doing some thin rips and I, the material pinched on the back of the blade, pulled my hand across it. And I took chunks out of two of my fingertips and they went necrotic instantly. No blood, just white. Ooh. I shut the saw off. Somehow my fingertips grew back. Uh, the next day I had some micro jig grippers. I had push sticks and I was saving for the saw stop. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like a, a a close call to to kind of remind you what what's going on, who's boss in there, and uh, get you to upgrade your safety stuff. That's one of the traps I've fallen into that I just keep putting it off because I don't want to spend the money on some of the safety equipment. But then there's those days where I'm just like, holy crap, that was close. I need to I need to recheck here. It is by far my favorite tool to use. I, I, I could probably do everything I needed to with a table saw and a router and enough jigs. Those tools will get you a very, very long way. But a router still scares the poop out of me. I, I want to say, I yeah, I'm pretty sure I built my first guitar on, with a table saw and a router and a handsaw, um, like a really thin, thin curve handsaw to do the fret work. That was yep. it. Everything else was sandpaper and sweat. Yep. A few files. Yeah. You you can do amazing things with those two. And I know some people will argue bandsaw versus table saw in terms of use. And I've I've always been a table saw guy. Uh, my my table saw is is the go-to. The bandsaw is just there for for resawing and curves. That's the only thing I ever use it for. I same I see guys say, Oh, it's safer to rip this big piece of wood on the on the bandsaw because you don't have to worry about the wood rocking or kickback or anything like that. But on the bandsaw, a long board just tips on that little tiny thing. So I feel like I'm going to throw my back out trying to manhandle something across that. So the table saw <laughs> is just, just way safer, I think, for me, at least for me personally. Well, and anybody who uses the table saw, I, I think these are good things to talk about for our listeners. The blade that you use in your table saw is incredibly important. And generally speaking, the more you spend on that blade, the cleaner your cuts are going to be to the point that you can buy a blade that you don't need to have your jointer anymore if you're gluing boards up or you can get darn close to getting rid of your jointer. The first time I had a friend, I, I went to a buddy of mine's 
shop and he had a high dollar forest blade on that was a you know this is a clean curve or whatever they called it i can't remember the name of the blade and i used it and i was like oh my word <laughs> like between the straightness of your fence and the cut of that blade i literally uh I, I can't remember what it was i had boards that were four foot long that needed to be glued i didn't have to do any work to them i just glued them together and it was a perfect seam and i went out that week and bought that exact same blade i went to the same store he did and said i, I want what he's got and it was an amazing upgrade but but that alone right there it's like well okay if you have a sled you can joint just about any board that you want to without a joiner. Well, okay, that cleans your shop out a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, uh, circling back to the the drums a little bit, I, I'm curious, are you still working your IT job or building drums is full-time now? Uh, <laughs> I got laid off in January from the IT job. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, maybe so that's a good thing. It's all right. Uh, I knew it was coming, and I got a, a pretty decent severance. And then... I just kept hammering at the uh, the drum shop, but I'm not pulling a salary from the drum shop. So uh, Greg probably knows this pain from his guitar tools. The drum shop is making just enough profit to pay for itself and pay, like cover some of Bill's bills, Bill's bills, some of William's bills, but he still is hustling on the side. He takes gigs and he teaches uh, to cover his mortgage and stuff. But I, I, can't take a salary so it's not making enough to pay two guys full time so anytime i'm over there it's with the hopes that i could can get it to a level but it so far it's been a an uphill battle uh because it's feast or famine i guess is the best way to yeah. put it yeah uh we'll we'll be building for a while and um this circles back to one of your quick queries from earlier greg it started mostly as custom orders mm -hmm. so word of mouth initially the company was doing modern sets and snare drums but there's so many companies doing that they're like every every mom and pop is pumping out the same drums and they're all buying their shells from the same two suppliers they're all buying their hardware from dfd which is a retailer that buys containers full from Taiwan. So everyone's using the same parts. That's why one of the big dis or one of the big things is you guys aren't really drum builders. You're just drum assemblers. Like not, not just us, the whole, the whole community the whole industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I so feel you, about river tables, river tables. Right. So, <laughs> so, Shots so fired. the guy, <laughs> the guy across the U S building a, a snare drum is probably using the same shell, probably using the same exact tube lug using the same triple flange hoop. And then he's either putting Remo or he's putting Evans heads on it. The only thing that's different differentiating us is the bearing edge profiles we use and the finish, the finish work. Who's better at the sanding, who's better at the staining, the, the spraying and the top coating, etc. While we were doing that, Bill accidentally fell into the rope tension game. He's was friends with a bunch of people in the drum and fife community, which is a thing up here in New England. I'm in Massachusetts. And I think someone brought him a kid's drum and they asked him if he could repair it. So he took it apart and repaired it, but then he also made one from scratch. And then it was like, oh, that's awesome. Can you make me one? Oh, that's awesome. Can you make me one? So little by little, he was making these. And what really tipped the scale was Hamilton the musical. Hamilton the musical comes out. They somehow find Bill 
and then he gets the contract to make the rope tension drum and the piccolo snare for every one of their productions. Oh, wow. Nice. So that put a decent paycheck into his pocket. So you get a, you get a little bump up and then built out the website. Um, over the past couple of years, I rebuilt the whole new website. So now we have, we take custom orders, but we, in between, we will build some inventory and slap them on the site. So we've actually, we, we actually sell some off the, just off the shelf done drums. It's people are like, you're just like, how'd you find us? Uh, Google. Nice. Yeah. So that's. So we got we got the little bump with Hamilton, and then the second bump was uh, one of the largest music retailers is uh, Steve Weiss, mm-hmm. and they reached out to Bill and they're like, "Hey, we want to we're thinking about stocking a rope tension drum because the only one we have is like this cheap one from I don't know where it is Taiwan or something that's put together with like shoestring and bubble gum. It's kind of crap." So we ended up getting a I get wholesale deal. Is that how yeah. you call yeah. it? I don't know. They they want a thirty percent cut, so you got to kind of wiggle the. So it's really lean profit margin, but it's like now you're in a relationship with a big retailer. So you get more clout to your name, right? So we do an, ex- I guess you could call it an exclusive. It's an exclusive because we put a modern, a modern drum throw off on it. Okay. Um, traditionally, when you think of rope tension drums, they use like a strainer. So it's just like a, a lead screw with a knurled knob that just pushes against a plate and pulls tension on the guts. Or or there's one that looks kind of like a door hinge and it sits against the, the drum and you turn a screw and it just pulls the snares uh, laterally, yep. I guess you could yep. say. So the exclusive rope tension then led to, we make concert toms for Steve Weiss. Okay. And that was, that was another, we just fell into it because of COVID, because of all the supply chain issues. All these all these schools had ordered concert toms for their for their programs, and they were all stuck in a container on a ship on the ocean. Oh wow! But we were able to just make some toms. So we basically stole. We took a took a piece of the market share. So we've done three runs of concert toms. <laughs> nice. Oh wow! And so that goes out to all the schools in the area, then. Yeah. So nice. uh, schools would just buy a, a concert toms for their marching program or their orchestral program so i'm guessing did you guys have shelf stock or shell stock on the shelf to make those or was that something where were your shell builders still making product we we don't stock that much in-house because that's a Mm -hmm. lot of money to tie up in the inventory so steve wise to come to us and then we'll order it from uh generally nordic for runs like that but sometimes keller but then it's a lead time so we're, we're waiting on them and they become more and more popular so the lead times get even worse and for anyone wondering why don't you just make your own drum shells <laughs> that's Uh-oh. an interesting point and i would love to how it works is they use these giant presses and they kind of look like um, a ceramic kiln mm-hmm. that's they're basically that big and you so if you're making a 10 ply drum you're using 10 layers of veneer and the big so the big companies just feed these through like a a glue rollers and then they make their sandwich and then they roll it up and they put it in this heated press they push a button and a combination of heat and pressure makes a tube now each one of those presses is north of 10 grand yeah and you need one press for each drum diameter yeah so that adds that's pretty quick that's why we can't get in the drum making business i have kind of a technical question when when they when you put it in the press you have like a flat sheet of plywood right and it's got to wrap around when those two ends touch how does that dressed how does that all held together because i imagine each layer you have to stagger that they stagger it and then none of them share it they don't share that information 
Oh, they and don't they... tell you what they do to that edge to bond those together to make sure that that no. especially that last outer shell if it comes free. right. It's it's uh you can see it's a it's just a butt joint. Okay, I was thinking they did a scarf joint on some shells. Not on the modern ply. Okay. On, on some of the old school, uh, you sometimes will see a scarf joint, but not usually. You think back before modern plywood, they were steam bent. Yeah. So they would wrap around and then you'd have this, that weird hump because they didn't generally put them on a lathe afterwards and true that up. They just left it. Mm. That was, uh, I heard lots of complaints. I, I was a Ludwig player. That was, that was my brand. I, I like those drums. And the complaint that I heard was that their shells were always egg shaped. And yeah. I'm guessing it was from exactly that, the, those weird overlaps at the end where you can either spend a month sanding them down or you can ship them. <laughs> and and that's what they did and they didn't recut bearing edges which is why they always you know they never it's it's like um my goodness uh i like to ski and there's there's nothing in the ski world that you can buy and just go out on the mountain and go and it feels awesome you have to get a boot fitter and you have to get somebody who jacks with your skis and gets the edges right or whatever i feel like drums are the same way right like you if you guitars are the same way too if you don't set them up and file the frets and do the things that's where all the money is in how a guitar plays you can buy a cheap ass guitar put money or put time into fret work and getting things leveled up and it will play like a guitar that's three or four thousand dollars and right. drums are very much that way if you don't recut those bearing edges and get around i mean think of how waves work right like you're tapping a membrane in a round circle and if you don't have if it's not concentric it, the waves don't travel right and you can hear it and it's unmistakable if you're not getting full contact all the way around like you have a, a low spot or a high spot it's it's almost the same as like a a, a dead spot on your guitar you get that buzz yeah. Yeah. yeah but the old drums you didn't really have to worry we we take apart drums from the 1800s they have oh man it's, it looks like old Pappy just kind of whittled the bearing edge on his front porch, but it didn't matter because it was calfskin heads. Yep. And you, I don't know if you've ever worked with calfskin, but you you just duck the, dunk the skin into water, comes out smelling like a, a stinky wet dog, and then you tuck it and you press it onto the head and pull tension while it's still wet and you let it dry in place. So the skin just follows the nastiness of the drum it doesn't matter it wasn't until you got to modern mylar heads where that started becoming a need for more precision yeah and the egging when they would roll them over and they'd have that scarf joint that's because of the how the tension in the wood works uh, yeah. that would you'd want to get like a flat spot there so to combat that that's where uh the first use of i think reinforcement rings came from where you got uh -huh. the in internal ring on the top and the bottom to try to force that round that would make sense yeah well I want to I want to change directions a little bit. We've talked an awful lot about drums and drum making, but that's not where I think your talents end. And for those who are watching this on YouTube, Brian has a Cookie Monster and the Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't know the character's name. Is it Jack? Yes, it's a Jack Skelton esque face on a foam. And a, a Ghostbusters. Uh, is it EV? Uh, I can't remember the the initials, but a Ghostbusters a backpack. Proton pack made out of EVA foam and PVC parts. Oh, there you go. There you random, go. Random nuts and bolts. Well, yeah, I think you can't see. There's also Luigi's Marvin. Luigi's oh. uh, Poltergust. Okay. Back there and above, what you can't see is my Oscar, 
the Grouch animal and a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. And you've done a Marvin the Martian too. I know Marvin I saw the Martians that. up there. Yeah. And I guess I guess where I'm going with this is if you guys haven't seen Brian's YouTube channel and Instagram, the epic Halloween costumes that you build. I know no one else on this planet who has put more time and effort into Halloween costumes than you have. It's first. First, the question is why. Is is Halloween your thing, or yeah. is it just something you started doing and you're like, man, I can't stop doing this? Halloween is my thing. I'm still trying to find a a picture. This year, I posted two pictures from my childhood on my Instagram page. One of them was <laughs> Danny Larusso from The Karate Kid after he's beat up. So it's just me with like a black eye. My mom put a black eye on me. And another one is a uh, Teen Wolf. So my okay. mother glued my mother glued fake hair to my face. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm still trying to find when one of my first costumes when I was a kid, I made a robot head. And all it is is a cardboard box that I covered with aluminum foil and stuck a, a red light bulb in his face for the nose. So for some reason, yeah, Halloween is just my thing. And when I bought my house, I decided that I was going to be the be the Halloween house, I guess. Uh huh. So I made the first thing I made was tombstones out of OSB. And I, I put a graveyard in my front yard and... <laughs> The first year was a store-bought costume, and I just stood there like a mannequin waiting for the kids, and then I just scared the crap out of them. It was amazing. And they'd be like, is that real? No, that's not real. I think it's... And then I just, yeah, just scared the crap out of them. Uh, how it escalated, the same thing. I was still, I was working on the house, working on... I'd do two or three or four or seven house projects, and I'd get burned out, so I'd do a quick woodworking project or something. And I decided the first year down this rabbit hole, I decided to make Edward Scissorhands. So I made his hands from scratch out of Azek. Oh, yeah. So PVC Plastic. trim boards, because lightweight. I had a few failures. I tried acrylic first, but it didn't work. Um, so I made these hands, and then I just got a wig, and I stood outside, and the kids, they loved it. And the the, adult, the adults loved it even more, because most of the kids don't know who Edward Scissorhands hey, that's is. That's an old anyway, movie. Right? Um, and then it, the next, the one that really popped off was Animal. Mm-hmm. Animal. So I did Animal, and I was like, "Man, this is all. This took a lot of time because the head was a, a an acrylic globe that you would use for a decorative lamp post in your yard, mm -hmm. and it's covered in felt and then laboriously glued on chicken feathers. Oh my word! And the body is felt, and I couldn't get the sewing machine to work, so it's all held together with hot glue. <laughs> <laughs> But so I'd spent so much time on this that I was like, I got to try to get a return on my investment here. And I searched online Halloween costumes, which is how I found Instructables, which is, and I, so I entered their Halloween contest. And when I started slay, I started winning contest after contest after contest. And I got basically, so I had a, a, a making addiction and an Instructables contest addiction at the same time. It was, it was pretty rad. But year after year, yeah, I tell myself, I'm not going to do this again. And then as soon as October rolls around, I just kind of get the itch, like well, a fe like a fiend. It's like I start scratching. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta make a costume. I I know, I, and I'm my memory's getting kind of foggy as I'm getting older, but I still remember pretty pretty well. You did Captain Jack Sparrow. Yep, and that and was a store bought costume, but I made the boat. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say. The boat was at your, didn't you, did you give out candy from the boat? Is that, am I remembering that right? So yeah, the front of my house is a retaining wall. Yep. So basically I just made the top of the boat out of 
PVC and I made the crow's nest out of EVA foam and it and I just for the for the sale I used a canvas drop cloth that you get at the box store okay. so it you know the the opening scene of that movie where he's just on the top of the boat because it's sinking that's what it looked like I, I was standing on top of this retaining wall on top of a boat and, and handing out candy actually um Shannon was handing out the candy down okay. in the drive down in the driveway I had made a pier out of a pallet and I'd made an EVA foam treasure chest. So and I, I think you, and I might be remembering this one wrong. You did during COVID, did you make a candy delivery system? Am I remembering that that was you? Yeah. So I, during COVID, I got a Nintendo switch mm -hmm. and one of the games that I fell in love with was Luigi's mansion. So that year I was Luigi. So I had his poltergust, like his, you know, the vacuum backpack and I made, a PVC Super Mario tube, the green tube, and that's what we were launching the candy down. Okay. <laughs> I just I just know like every every early October to pay close attention either to your Instagram or to YouTube to see to see what you're gonna put up. And I'm always amazed at like again, I'm looking at the cookie monster behind you. Like people need to understand how real it looks. And when you're dressed up, I think you had a picture on Instagram of you kind of in front of the house or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh my lord, how long did that take to put together? It it does, it looks like it's TV ready. All said and done, Cookie Monster this year was probably 200 hours. But I had to teach myself skill sets that I didn't have like every year it seems I have to teach myself how to sew again <laughs> because I don't do it so I have to teach I have to reteach myself how to thread the thing how to mess with the tension and sewing thick fur is a different animal than trying to sew a shirt I, yeah. it might be comparable to those to the seats you're sewing there Greg oh it's <laughs> it's it's the same nightmare and I mean I've got behind me here on the floor I've got a stack of practice pieces that I put yep. together like and and I go I don't know I'll spend three or four hours just like you said the tension from bottom to top is the you know is it pulling out of the the thread spool I, I don't know the right way to say that but yeah the spool all, and the bobbin yeah the spool and the bobbin you know is it pulling off off both of them correctly are you you know god forbid you get a thick thread on the bottom and a thin one on the top and, you know, screw that up. It, it'll take you a week to figure out what you did wrong. You think you're doing well and then you tip it over and you got this huge bird's nest. You're like, oh no. <laughs> oh, there's nothing. And the machine I have, I have a really small machine, right? And and I have really big hands. <laughs> and, and, you know, God forbid something go wrong in the bobbin and you have to reach in there for any period of time. It's like you, it's, it's almost, they're made for very small people, uh, who children who never make mistakes. Yeah. For, for 12 year olds, uh, to do production on. I but, think you have, you have a better machine though. You have like more of an industrial machine with a walking foot, don't you? I do. So it's, it's the same machine that a sale right is today. Yeah. So yeah. uh, there's also, I think they call them Rex, and there, there's like 10 companies that use the same casting. The machine I have is the old, 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 it was the original, it was the original one that everybody copied. And yeah. so it does have a walking foot, which is wonderful in some instances. If you're doing any material that can scratch, it's the worst damn machine in the world. Like, you know, some leathers are really sensitive to getting pulled on. So yeah. you do have to be careful, but it, it, yes, it's intended to do leather and things of that nature, 
no, it's not a strong machine. So you still wind up like, I don't know, I if you watch any videos that I've done of, of upholstery, I'm feeding in with my hands as much as the machine is working itself. And so yeah. I can work in maybe like six inch increments before I have to reposition and, and go. It's not fast. Well, yeah. Well, I'm sewing. I am barely pushing that pedal. <laughs> like yeah. You could probably spin it by hand because as soon as I go too fast, uh, I'm in I, I'm in the wall and like NASCAR just bam. <laughs> it's over but the the thing with the thing with cookie monster right is there was all kinds of challenges because i didn't know how to make him fat he needed to be he needed to be bigger yeah. and i did and i'm not a seamstress so i didn't know how to take i didn't know how to make patterns from scratch and i didn't know how to take an existing pattern and size it enlarge it i tried i tried to take like a, a i have a onesies from bucky's bucky mm -hmm. the beaver yeah uh, and I tried to I tried to use that as a pattern and resize it, and it just didn't look right. I wasted two to three days on that before I decided to just go buy uh, dense high density foam from Joann's that you use for upholstery and build that fat suit. Uh, if anyone actually wants to nerd out on this, you can go to my instructables and see it. It's like thirty two steps. You can really go down the rabbit hole. But I had to build a fat suit, and then. Even after I spent days making the fat suit, then I had to figure out how I was going to make a pattern for the blue fur to go on the fat suit. Because I was making some some templates as I went, but because of the way that the foam changes as it stretches and crushes as you glue it together uh, with contact cement, the geometry changes. So I didn't I didn't know how to make the pattern. So I had to teach myself how to drape. Oh yeah, uh -huh. and I wasted three days draping if, if anyone that doesn't know draping basically usually you use like cotton or muslin but i was too cheap so yeah. i use an old bed sheet and you're just like kind of pinning it to the to the you would use a dress form but i already had a cookie monster fat suit so i was just pinning it straight to that to try to try to make my to make my seams and then you yeah. you you get a pattern and then okay good so i made you had to make a pattern for the front the back and like the butt area it was a nightmare and then you had to add seam allowance it's a whole thing. And then I added a little more seam allowance than I thought I need because I was like, I'd rather have this be a little, I'd rather that Cookie Monster have loose skin than me not be able to get this thing on there. It, it was a disaster, but it, tur it turned out right. Yeah. Uh, I decided to make the, for Halloween night, I decided to make the bakery outside. Yeah, I made a stage out of uh, two by fours and the drop cloth backdrop and I made a fake uh, commercial oven out of EVA foam and Shannon dressed up like my personal baker. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> but yeah, the, well, the, the, ki the kids love it. I mean, as long as you stay oh, in yeah. character, you take you take the head off and the game's over. Yeah. Yeah. Then so, it's just a dude in a fat suit. Yeah. Just some weird, who's this weird dude? But Cookie Monster, the kids loved Cookie Monster. They love Animal and even Oscar the Grouch. Oh, of course. Because Oscar the Grouch um anyone that checks that out that's also you, it looks like a puppet but it's not i'm inside of that thing and i'm inside of an actual trash can yeah from, from home depot it's it's or from Lowe's. it's stupid yes one of the interesting things is i always have people asking me if they can buy the costumes or or rent them and i obviously i'm not going to rent them because they'll if they ever come back if i ever see them again they'll probably be trashed uh, but I, I always have to tell people like, here's, here's the thing I, I'm five to seven. So the costume is sized to me. So unless you're the same shape and size as me, it's not going to fit. And in order for it to be worth my while, I'm going to have to charge you thousands of dollars. You know, <laughs> Brian probably sees that with furniture building. I, I see it a lot all the time as well. 
people, I see it with the drums too. People ask me to build drums and I give them a price based on materials and, and time. And they're just like, what? I can go to Ikea and get the bookcase for like a 10th of that. Or I can go to guitar center and buy a drum for a 10th of that. So yeah. unless they, unless they intrinsically see the value in it, uh, I can't get anywhere, but that kind of goes back to your point. Why do I build these costumes? I have no I have no valid reason other than I think it's fun. Well, that's that's a reason enough right there. And yeah. it's a huge it's a huge design challenge. But um, the one thing I wanted to loop back on before I forget, when you were making those patterns for your car, the one thing you had in your favor was you had the old seats to take apart. You're correct, but um, and I still don't know the answer as to whether or not the work I did is actually going to work out. Uh, cause I haven't, oh. I haven't made the foam yet to stretch them over. Um, I'm, I'm fairly confident because there's a lot of squish in the foam, right? So there's, there's some guardrails there, but the problem is with vinyl that's 50, 60 years old is that, that it, it has become a form that's no longer flat. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of shape in those panels. Now, again, you know, your your new piece is going to take 20 years to get into that shape. So you, you kind of want it flat, but there's there's a lot of guesswork there. And, you know, you sort of like you make a couple of seat covers and you understand where the mistake or where the not mistakes can be, but where the overhangs are. Right. Like, so I'm going to make this whole thing long and it's all going to be down here where nothing matters anymore. But right the front edge of the seat needs to line up perfectly. And, you know, all the things that line up underneath the seat to tie it down to the seat frame and things of that nature, those have to be damn near perfect. Otherwise you'll tear your seams if it's too small or it'll be baggy if it's too big. And yep. Same problems. then. I am, you know, the last set of seats that I made was 12 years ago. And so I am confident that when I stretch these things over the seat frames, I'm going to have to take them off, go back to the sewing machine and fix the mistakes. I just don't know where those mistakes are right now. Right. The other funny thing about templates that you reminded me of is I, up until the, recently, I saved every template from every costume I had made thinking, if I get rid of this, I'm going to, that's the day I'm going to need it. Why well, I, I had some roof leaks and some of them got destroyed and the ones that I needed that would have helped me on Cookie Monster were the what were the ones I didn't have, didn't have. <laughs> it's like man, but well, I'm the, are you the same way with with uh, jigs? I've watched, oh. I, I've gone on a video binge of of Brian's recently. Do you make a lot of custom jigs for your work, Brian? Yeah, and I throw most of them away because uh, what do. happens is everything is a new shape and a new project. And so I was saving them. And in my attic, I have stacks and stacks of them, but I ran out of room up there and I have, have in 10 years, I just added to it. I've never taken anything down because whenever someone asks me to build something that I've already built before, uh, if it's a really special project for a, that I built for a particular client, I generally decline, decline it because I want it to be that one-off piece. Uh, mm. But if it is something that I built before, when I look at my old design, my design mind or my design eye has changed over the years. And so I look at it, I'm like, ah, I want to, I want to do better. I want to change it. And so I have no need to go back. So I just, I just keep throwing them away or cutting them up and reusing them into another, another project. Do you make your own tooling? I know Greg does. And then he transfers it into a business because he's smart. <laughs> no, I, I, 
I would like to make my own tooling. My my uh, my long term goal is to figure out how to afford some kind of mill and learn how to use it so I can make my own tools. Because uh, the tools you buy today, they just they just don't last as as well I was as I would like. And then also it would free me up to just be able to make whatever tool to fit whatever need I have. Yeah, we've found that mills are easy to come by. The expense comes in moving them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And. You can try to move them yourself. They they are the proverbial monkey effing a football. Uh, they're so top heavy, like mm -hmm. ridiculously top heavy, and oh, and there's nowhere to pick them up. I mean, yeah, there there's a place to pick them up, but there's nowhere to pick them up. Right. So, yeah, do you have a mill in your drum shop? Bill has a a fray mill. I think it started its life on a battleship. So what's a what's a fray mill? It it looks like a bridge port. Bridgeport, okay. Fray, phrase the manufacturer. Got it. But the head can uh, tilt, articulate. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy. It's pretty diesel. And he didn't he got it for a song, but he had to drop the money to have it have it moved move. for him. So uh, kind of circling back to back to drums now. Do you have any plans to like manufacture your own heads and nuts and hardware with that mill to kind of? customize your guys' own designs and in your own hardware? Bill has been making his own hardware. I have yet to play with a mill. He also has a, a nice, um, a really nice metal lathe that I'd love to, yeah. to play with to make lug spacers. But he he has made um, his own strainers. So the the things that pull tension on the on the gut. So he makes his own strainers. We've made some uh, custom feet, which are uh, metal bits that screw to the the hoop. So when you set the drum down, it's not setting directly on the the ropes, so the ropes don't get chewed up. Uh, yeah, hoops. We would need a TIG welder, which we don't we don't have yet. So we need more infrastructure. But some of that is some of that is just right now cheaper to buy and, and the rope tension drums they they all use wooden hoops so they don't they don't use the metal hoops so the that's that's a good point like i said back back before we were making the drum sets and the snare drums and they look like everybody else's and i was just kind of like there's we're not making a lot of money here there's no there's no meat on the bone i actually did a, a cost analysis and it was a couple hundred bucks we were making on a drum set at the end of the day. But when I did a cost analysis on the rope tension drums, there was more meat on the bone because you're not paying out as much for materials. Because there's not equity. There's not a lot of metal bits because all the tension is rope. So and we're then, buying we're buying the shells, the shell stock and the hoop stock from, from one vendor. We're buying rope in bulk from another vendor. And we have a, a distributor deal with Evans. So we're getting heads at a discount. So we're able to lower the cost a bit. And then labor, obviously. The standard rope drum takes about 10 hours in labor, start to finish. And the one of the things that I was working on, because I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to this, is efficiencies. So what can we do? Like one day we'd bulk out a bunch of shells. Another day we'd bulk out the hardware and jigs mainly marking jigs if i have to measure an offset for the for the same hole more than three times i'm making a jig and we usually just we cut them out on a laser cutter so now we just have all these all these little edge guides or edge offsets i'm not sure what you call them they kind of look like a a set it and forget it combination square and they're labeled with the action and we just plop them on the drum and uh hit them with an awl so so we we already got the materials as low as we can so Try to get the try to get the labor as low as you can. There's there's a couple things that I've learned from watching your channel that are have nothing to do with building drums, but they have everything to do with building drums. One is uh, your your processes of shop organization, and I don't 
I don't give two figs of what you're trying to produce. If you're not organized, it's never going to come together. That That's like a key. The other one is uh, you started, I don't know if it was a Kanban or Kanban, whatever, however you say that type of board, but what's, what is, what is the project? What stage is it in and where's it moving across the board? And when can we get it off the board? Mm-hmm. That, that notion of projects moving through process in a visual way I, again, I don't care what type of manufacturing you're doing that is invaluable. And then the other, the, the last thing that I get from your channel is again, that attitude of if I have to pull out my tape measure more than a couple times, this is a repetitive task. It requires something to facilitate doing that repetitive task without having to worry about error and eliminating that error. And it, it, I've, I've seen, I don't know, I, I can't remember when you started, started putting, you know, videos of you and Bill building drums in that industrial space up. I want to say it was three or three years ago, plus or minus a little bit. Yeah, two to three but, years when he asked me to help him out. Yeah. And like the day you <laughs> walked in there, like that first video gave me anxiety of there was just piles of shit everywhere. And yep. it was, it was. I understand my mind works exactly like if you look at my desk right now, it's fairly disorganized. But when I have a project to do, the shop gets cleaned up, that project gets put, you know, it's like everything has to go in order because I, you know, I do some things 10,000 at a time or a thousand at a time or 500 at a time. And when you're doing 500 or something, they, it's funny. I, I have certain parts that have logos on them that are real small. And as I'm assembling them, there's what, one, two, three four, five, six parts that go together in this thing that's this big, right? And everything gets stacked with the logos facing the same direction at all times in rows of 10. So I can visually say, okay, there's six rows, there's 60 pieces. Mm. And if if I accidentally, you know, because you get into that, you're often never, never land when you're doing something for the 600th time, right? Like you you can't hold concentration that tight for that long. But when you look over and there's one that has a logo flipped, you know that that needs to come out of the stack, get taken apart and flipped over and done right. And anyway, sorry, all of those processes that that you have infused into that shop, I feel like, again, even if you're not interested in building drums, watch Brian's channel and catch some of those things over time because they're incredibly important. That first day when I walked in there, I almost turned around and left. I was like what is going on here man like bill functions in organized chaos yeah but i can't like my shop everything has its place like i will make a thing to hold that thing but so i always know where it is it always goes back my brain is at ease and bill like i I just told him i was like if i come work here we got to clean this place up because i'm gonna spend half my day looking for the thing i set down i can't find it like he just had clutter creep. It was, yeah. it, it, and thankfully, I've known Bill for 20 years. We met in the in the music scene, because as you know, or any people might know, my, I started my career as a full-blown musician. Yeah. Like, I started playing drums at the age of eight, and I was in bands all the way up until 45. So we met, we met in the Boston original scene, and we played in several bands together, uh, like rock bands and a low-budget production of Hedvig and the Angry Inch where he wore lipstick was pretty great but (laughs) Bill trusts me so he I gave him a plan I was like this is what I want to do I think all the dust throwers should go in one area 
They should be on the other side from your finishing booth, so you're not frost contaminating. I think all the metal stuff should go on a wall. I think all the finished product should go over here. We should purge. And he said, it looks good. Go for it. So he trusted me. Yeah. Which was it, huge. And it took me over a year to get that shop. Like it, every, so going back to the videos, uh, as I, I'm just, Brian's going to be like, I can't edit this crap. This guy's like all over <laughs> the place. What the hell's going on? Um, so we all have YouTube channels. My, the Calderwood channel has always been pretty much drum. So when I started my Bales channel, it was so I could put just the woodworky stuff that weren't drums. So I didn't want to cross contaminate. So my cha my channel started as uh, the one-off artsy drums and woodworking projects, but they were pretty elaborate and they were done. They were synced to music, if you remember, because mm -hmm. I, if I would edit without music, I would end up with like this 25 minute video that had way too much fat. But if I made myself edit to music, I had to chop it. Yeah. Gotta hit the beat. I, and I'm also a musician. So I was like lining up all the things to to hit with the, the beat. So it's it really cool. But um, my channel was, it was going well for a while, mainly due to David Picciuto. Thank you, David. And then he stopped his show and then it kind of, it kind of stalled. And part of that was because of the music. I was using my own original music because I didn't want to deal with copyright. Right. So I was already splitting my audience in half. The people that could tolerate the music or like the music and the people that hated the music. So they clicked off the video. <laughs> Feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. So then I would I would do a cut with no music because they'd be like, this music sucks. So I'd I'd do the same video without the music, and then that wouldn't get any views. It, it was a mess. So I kind of I, I got disenchanted with the channel for a while. And then I took the trip to Egypt and then I put like 25 Egypt videos on. I'm like the poster child. If you want to know how to destroy a YouTube channel, talk to me. <laughs> first thing is use your own music that no one likes second is start mixing all the content so no one knows what the hell your channel is about well yeah so, you know i tanked it with egypt so i was like oh i'll throw some costuming videos on here too and then i just kind of i just let it go and funny enough the only thing that's keeping it monetized right now is probably the costuming videos um but i went back to the drum shop and i was kind of like man if we're gonna do this i think we should do some more videos and bill wanted to do educational videos uh-huh like, this is how you rope a drum. This is how you do a drag rope and blah, blah, blah. And we do some of those on the Calderwood channel, or we were until it got demonetized. And then it kind of, I kind of lost all, all motivation. Um, lost, it lost monetization because of, it wasn't it hit the threshold of views. Oh, wow. Kind of sucks. Um, but my point is, I was like, I, I want to videotape because I like editing, but I don't want to come up with a script and I don't want to edit to a thing. So I just went the vlog route. Yep. And I'm only averaging like, maybe a hundred views. But what I like about it is the people that are watching it are there because they dig it. Like, like that's why I don't plan on rebuilding a car anytime soon, <laughs> probably ever, but I like watching yours. Cause I, cause I pick up all the tips and tricks. Right. Yeah. But also like, you know, the OCD hoarders, uh, like I should make my own HGTV show where I just go across the country and clean people's workshops, maybe. But <laughs> but also Bill's dad, he'll be there, yeah. he'll be working. And Bill has young kids, right? So for me, I kind of see this as a, a video scrapbook. Uh -huh. And so it's for me when I'm, when Bill and I are old and we're, we can't find our teeth and we want to reminisce, we can watch videos. And when his kids want to see what dad and grandpa and their crazy little buddy was doing they can kind of pull them up that's my that's my only motivation on the on the videos but uh, uh, I, I it's nice that you that you watch them and find some value in them well i i think you know when i look at a lot of 
I'll just say the content that I consume. I know that's an overused word, but the things that I go after, sometimes, you know, the the original appeal is because there's something that I'm interested in, right? But the reason that I that I sort of continue to follow channels over time is because there there's something way deeper than the initial like sparkly thing that I looked at on a thumbnail. And I've learned, and I, I think it's a great lesson for anybody who makes anything, is you have to be an open channel for what's coming in. You, you know, it goes back to uh, one of the greatest examples that I ever, that I ever heard was um, Steve Jobs was talking about a calligraphy class that he audited at Stanford, I think, and how the fact that he went into this calligraphy class to, you know, and and learned about fonts and lettering and serif and non-serif fonts, that was what created the graphic interface for the Macintosh that separated it from the PC. All of a sudden, people were like, I want my computer screen to have pretty text on it. And it was simply because Steve Jobs audited a calligraphy class. And that collision of chocolate and peanut butter, so to speak, is what I think has fueled my entire making and manufacturing and design life is allowing yourself to be influenced by things that you totally didn't expect to be influenced by. Yeah, I agree. I don't watch a lot of woodworkers much anymore. Yeah, I don't I don't either. If they're you know back to, back to Brian's jab from earlier, if they're building the 7000th river table, I'm I'm not terribly interested. But yeah. if they're building a river table with a wrinkle in it that I've never seen before, I'm in. Right. And and I've seen a lot of those. You know, there there's a lot of really, you know, as as ideas evolve and things iterate, that to me is where the magic happens, right? The the simple putting two slabs together and pouring epoxy between them. Okay. First guy does that. Second guy does that. Third guy, you know, yawn. But yeah. then, okay, then that, you get some guy doing it falling over an edge. Well, now that's kind of interesting. And mm-hmm. then you get somebody carving stuff that goes underneath of them. Well, that's another twist that I hadn't thought of. And so there's, there is an evolution that's interesting, but you know, uh, it, it goes back to me on the design side of things. Everybody steals from everybody. Like it's, it's how you, the world wouldn't progress if we didn't borrow ideas, you know, or uh, what did I hear Joe Bonamassa say, uh, lift, if, if people didn't lift ideas from one another. And, but yeah. the twist is you can't borrow it. You've got to steal it, make it your own. Yeah. And that's where, that's where it comes in for me is you, you gotta, you gotta possess that sucker. Yeah, the true talent is in the iteration. For sure. Like yeah. One of, one of my favorite teachers, and I, I talk about him a lot, Dan Rockhill. He told me one time, I, I was in a furniture making class of his, and uh, and he said, why don't, why don't you just, I, I had made a prototype of something. It was, it was god awful. <laughs> like, it was terrible. <laughs> and, and I brought it into his office, and, he, you know, I could just see like the, oh, no, what have I got here? I got a real dumb one. And and he grabbed a, a Metropolis magazine, which if you're into design, Metropolis is one of the best magazines out there. He just grabbed one and he goes, just just take this magazine home tonight and pick a chair and just make it. And I was like, well, but that this class is about design. He goes, trust me, whatever chair you pick out of there as you're making it, it's not going to come out like the picture that you started on. He goes, but but start there and try and make that chair, but then it'll become yours. And he was a hundred percent right. And, you know, I, I went back and, you know, five prototypes later, 
it looked nothing like the picture in in the magazine, but it was the right size and the right scale. And it felt like it should sit on the ground on four legs instead of, you know, whatever weird spider caterpillar thing that I brought into him on day one. And it was it was such great advice. He's like, just just pick one and build it. And by the time you're done, it's it's going to be something different. And I, I think that, you know, as you steal ideas, that's how you do it, right? You got to build that foundational knowledge is how I think of it. I, I always relate everything back to music. Like I didn't pick up the drums and just start composing like Mozart. I started playing my records, my favorite from Motley Crue and Dream Theater, Queensryche. I was playing their stuff and had to get the the I had to get the the foundation. I had to get my limbs working, hear how things blended together before I could start getting my own style, my own my own sound, you could say. Yeah, same same thing. Yeah, same thing with learning the saxophone. Uh, you have to learn, okay, well, you got to learn what Charlie Parker's style is and what uh, John Coltrane's style is before you can understand what they're doing so you can have some kind of jumping off point to uh, to start down your own path. Yeah, I figured you'd be in your room with a Kenny G CD. Yeah, no. You, you went right to Coltrane. Woo! <laughs> yeah, no. Right. Kenny G, yeah, when I was in high school, Kenny G was the, the saxophone player that uh, everybody made fun of playing to babies so yeah to he was babies? not yeah well he was on uh, some tv show where he was playing a saxophone to some baby and, and the baby was giggling or something i don't <laughs> i don't remember that was a long time ago but yeah he was uh not to say that he's not a talented saxophonist because uh, he is but uh uh in the uh in the high school jazz world uh he, he was not the cool guy to listen to <laughs> yeah i get it That's you funny. think he's related to weird al yankovic oh 100 throwing that out there that they, they look fabio like they could be, they're all they're all three related they could easily be first cousins yeah <laughs> well the, have you ahead. ever seen him in the room together you ever seen him in the same room together <laughs> oh they could be the same guy yeah this is, think about that is this like uh whatever the the Jacksons? You never see uh Jermaine and Latoya in the same room, something like that. <laughs> it's the same person. Could be. Well, I'm looking at the clock. We've been on here for for over an hour now, and what a great conversation! Uh, it's like I said, you know, you you hang out with people on YouTube and comment back and forth for years at a time, and sometimes you never meet, and it's always great. Uh, to have conversations with with folks that that you followed for so long and kind of understand their journey a little bit. So Brian, I I appreciate you hopping on tonight and chatting with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So before we uh, jump off here, do you have any uh, new future projects that you're planning on? Some new crazy big build, whether that be drums or the next year's Halloween costume. <laughs> Shannon asked me to take it easy on next week next year's Halloween costume. Uh, she doesn't get to vote though. She doesn't get a vote. No, I I don't have any more costume ideas. Cookie Monster was like the last one on the, on the list, so Uh-oh. I don't know. Well, we'll have to see if something comes up if another movie jumps out or something. Um, so I haven't been at the drum shop for the past two months because Bill's had an intern. Ooh. The uh, but the intern this is his last week, and I I figured well since he has an intern, I don't need to be. The intern was there with him every day. I was only going over one or two days a week, and the intern's free. So I figured he could build up his bank a little bit. And Shannon wanted me to wrap up like house projects because you know, this house is never done. It seems like um, I'll be I'll probably be going back to the drum shop. And I'm kind of scared because I'm hoping he hasn't backslid into uh, mm. the junk pile. <laughs> so we'll have to take the video camera 
and see where it is. Um, I would like to get into TIG welding for to to make more more parts. Um, but I don't really have a any any projects planned. At one time, I wanted to make a six octave marimba, but I decided against it because I don't have anywhere to put it. Small details, small challenges. <laughs> like hey, we don't need this dining room table, right? <laughs> No, uh, I, I have a couple, I do have a couple crazy drum build ideas, uh, but I probably don't want to say them because I don't want to get ripped off. Uh, well, then we will not, uh, we will not press the issue then for sure. All right. So, uh, Greg, do you want to take us out then? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks again for joining us, Brian. Brian's social media is both on YouTube and Instagram, Bales5000. I am on Instagram and YouTube as well, either on Greg's Garage KC or on Skyscraper Guitars. And I can be found anywhere on any social media under Benham Design. And you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. Uh, you can find all our past episodes at themakersquest.com. Thanks for listening.